Welcome to Tea with the Changemakers. This week, I'm speaking to Claire Farrell, a fashion designer and lecturer from South East London. Claire was first arrested for civil disobedience in 2017 as part of a campaign against air pollution in London, a project that helped to inform the ideas behind Extinction Rebellion, of which she is a co-founder. She was arrested again on the 10th of October 2019 while blocking the private jet passengers' entrance at the London City Airport action during the 2019 October Rebellion. She was charged with obstruction of the highway and tried at the City of London Magistrates Court on the 16th of January. I'm delighted to welcome Claire to the show this week. So how I'd like to start this off is that, first of all, I was quite surprised. I mean, I've heard of Extinction Rebellion and I feel like I know enough about Extinction Rebellion. You're all over the media, you're in the press a lot. Sometimes that description of who you are and what you do can be distorted. And I have the privilege today of speaking to you, Claire, a co-founder of Extinction Rebellion. So in your own words, how would you describe Extinction Rebellion and what led you to be one of those co-founders to set up this movement? Well, I think the movement is made up of quite a, a, a large number of people who are, you know, deeply concerned with the current context and uh, willing to do something which might involve personal sacrifice. The age range is quite broad, but all over the world, it shows up in different ways. But in the UK, we do have quite an old base. There's quite a lot of retired people. There's quite a lot of middle-aged people. Uh, We also have youth kind of groups, um, have different groups depending on uh, faith or sometimes on profession. You know, we've got groups of doctors and health professionals. We've got groups of lawyers. We've got groups of scientists. (laughs) Uh, some of those groups quite f- sort of famously go out and, and take direct action together and do uh, non-violence. So, yeah, it's a uh, it's, it's a mostly people who are bound together, in my opinion, by a sort of um, a sense of commitment to change and commitment to peace and non-violence, commitment to honesty and uh, justice. Um, and a friend of mine. Uh, said to me a few years ago, you know, when Extinction Rebellion sort of emerged in the world, that he thought it was um, very beautiful because it presented an identity that you could align with, which said that the most rational response to this situation is a compassionate one. Mm. And um, that made that made my heart sing because I thought we we did have something right at the beginning for that to be the sort of perception but you're completely right since then you know uh the media use all this strange language zealots (laughs) nobody uses the word zealots do they in real life it's very strange how the tabloid media use all these weird weird ancient words (laughs) anyway you know they've they've done a fairly big gig on us you know the mainstream media um and also uh, the people within politics you know that they've got pr people that work for them and with them so Mm -hmm. when they use a description that should apply to them a selfish minority to describe us (laughs) (laughs) um you know that is probably a turn of phrase that cost them a lot of money Mm -hmm. because they had to get somebody expert to come up with that particular spin because they are trying to sort of put us into a certain place in people's imaginations. Mm. So there's there's a sort of raging culture war that everyone knows about through 
the media, but I think when you really pay attention to the way that it is stoked from within Westminster itself and Downing Street itself, um, uh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's quite frightening, really. Yeah, and you use one word there, sell it. But I've got some other words that have been de- used to describe you. Um, you know, um, law-breaking anarchists, economic terrorists, eco-fascists. I mean, how would you respond to that? That's not that's not extinction rebellion, is it? No, I mean most of those um, articles and commentators who use language like that are just uh, being excruciatingly childish, in my opinion. Um, you know, they're the, they're the giant children that are ruining society and dragging us over a cliff, people who think and talk like that. Um, when you actually look at the detail of what we do and you compare that with, you know, the the definition of peaceful, nonviolent protest, um, you look back at the sort of political heritage and the lineage that we, that we work in, the tradition of the people whose shoulders we stand on, um, when you look at things like Pretty Patel saying that we do organised crime, when you examine the definition of organised crime, that's just wholly incorrect. I actually know somebody who worked on the government definition of organised crime as a barrister who is uh, part of our part of our movement. It's insulting, isn't it? <laughs> well, he's sh- he said he was he found it shocking that that level of inaccuracy was allowed to go completely unchecked from the people in uh you know the highest positions in the in public office in in public service supposedly service um so yeah it's um yeah we just we're just living in very uh challenging times and i think you know people are very worried about the sort of collapse of the climate and spiraling kind of breakdown of biodiversity but actually we really are witnessing like the deterioration and collapse of um any sense of decency in public life Mm. the complete collapse of any trust in politicians Mm. the complete dereliction of our democracy in front of our eyes i mean there's a sort of uh yeah there's a breakdown and a collapse going on 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 multiple fronts and i think some of them are getting a lot less attention than others and that's obviously massively to do with the captured uh billionaire owned corporatized media (laughs) Mm -hmm. and so is the mission of extinction rebellion to raise awareness and to bring more people with you and how would you respond to people that say that some of the protests some of the demonstrations are potentially turning people off or turning people away from the topic of climate change and and what's happening in our world today well first of all you know extinction rebellion was i guess it was in some way set up to to raise an alarm but it was actually is actually more important to me that the design of our um approach was to create the conditions for social change to take place and to accelerate the possibility of that change because we've got i mean we're past a deadline really by approximately a generation and you know some people think that we've been quite successful because obviously shortly after we uh, came on the scene and the school strikes happened there was a, a net zero target released by our government which was world leading unfortunately that date 2050 kicks the can down the road by you know another generation which is absurd 
But I think, you know, we were set up to, to, to raise an alarm, but we were not set up to, you know, become a um, political force that, that, that people would um, align with in order to sort of win over bits of policy here and there or get people to agree with us on those things. It was, it was to sort of get people to, to wake up to the objective reality that they're completely fucked and their kids are fucked. And, you know, that's not a, that's not a popular message, is it? So it's no. not easy to, to see how you would be popular going around talking about it in, in, in such a bold way as we did. But I think also what's important and seems really important to me at the moment watching our court cases go through the Crown Court system and hearing people like judges. I heard a judge the other day say some comment in his summing up that actually, you know, some people don't like the things that protesters do and it turns people off of the cause uh, that is um as far as i'm aware that's a sociologically illiterate thing to say because where there's a universal need i.e to be able to live on earth it it really it you can't turn people off of that if they need the same thing too what you can do is increase the sort of volume of the public conversation so that it never goes away. Mm. And I think a lot of people have not understood, firstly, how civil disobedience works, how social change can be accelerated by using it, but also how keeping it up on people's agenda is far more important than um, whether or not somebody likes me, <laughs> mm. you know, whether mm. or not somebody likes the fact that some people sat in a road. And civil disobedience and disruption is really important to bring about social change. And we only have yeah. to look back at history. We have to go back to Emily Wilden-Davidson, who threw herself in front of the King's Horse. We've got your poll tax riots of the 1990s, um, you know, the London March against the Iraq War, which, you know, did kind of lead to Tony Blair's downfall. If those things didn't happen, that disruption and that civil disobedience, yeah. then those things wouldn't change. So it's easy isn't it, I guess, in the moment for people to think this is inconvenient now, but actually in future years, people will probably look to Extinction Rebellion as, as one organisation that actually did some bold and brave things. They might have been disruptive at the time, but actually have really helped to hopefully accelerate the mission of, of making a difference. Is that what you hope through Extinction Rebellion? Well, I feel certain that that will happen. You know, we, we're committed to the deterioration of planetary stability, weather patterns. That means that it's likely that our food systems will break. That means it's likely that we'll have serious disruption to people's um, access to medicine in the near future. That means that the insurance industry is going to be very badly affected. I mean, I don't think that warming the planet to over 1.5 to 2 degrees is consistent with an insurance industry because there isn't going to be business continuity. So you can't rely on anything really in the future, mm -hmm. as far as I can see where we're going. I mean, you know, I, I don't think people have realised the magnitude of what is happening. And I think people are in a kind of extreme state of denial, really, about what's going on. Is it because it feels so far away to a lot of people I mean think about human psychology people live very much in the moment and now and not really focusing on what's down the line people say that we're sort of conditioned to respond far better to sort of threats that have immediate effect and longer term threats we're not so well built to um 
face up to. But I mean, we've also just set up completely psychotic systems and uh, those systems lift up psychopaths to be in charge of things, you know, and you can see it all over the place in societies, in Western societies. You know, I also think that there's an inability for people to imagine what could be different. And, you know, this is what we I've been talking with a bunch of artists and stuff recently about this. Like, you know, there's a big responsibility on the on the shoulders of people whose imaginations are still intact. Because I think that one of the reasons why we're in the situation that we're in is literally because people just can't think of anything else to do other than mm. just go along with this. I also think that we need to sort of support people who are willing to go out and break norms, break laws, do difficult things, because um, the society that we live in is, um, you know, in in organising the intentional destruction of the next generation is, an, is a complete obscenity and we are existing and we're complying with it that like you're either resisting that or you're complying with it and that's unfortunately the situation that it puts us in but but i think one of the biggest successes of neoliberalism and that mantra there is no alternative is the complete strangulation of people's imaginations you know i do think that's been an enormous success of of that kind of era and it's because the neoliberal agenda didn't only kind of enter our world through the words of politicians, but it also, you know, comes through culture. It's a much more sort of insidious kind of uh, the reality that, that we're that we're swimming in. But this, I, this notion that you just can never do anything differently, like, of course you fucking can. Mm, mm. This is shit. Like, what's mm. happening now is shit. Loads of people are really unhappy. Loads of people are really poor. The rich are sucking everything up. There's less and less and less resource for people at the bottom if you like and um and it it is completely unsustainable it won't mm. it can't carry on it's going to break itself i mean it's just it's embarrassing mm. you know mm. sure we can do stuff differently and much better than this and i mean it's a hard message isn't it to ask people to perhaps give up their liberty that that could be the outcome of you know being a part of this movement but mm. as i've read you know you did start like everybody else by trying to meet with your mp signing petitions marching educating yourself educating others trying to do good through your own work um you know you even went on a hunger strike for two weeks but you felt that none of that made a difference and that's why you moved into what many people would say is more drastic action which was well, led to you know some personal sacrifices for yourself, and that's right, isn't it? I mean, that that's that's the that's the sort of journey that you went on. Was there a real frustration on that journey, which then led you to feel like, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to break the law here to to make something happen, to make change happen? Yeah, I mean, it's a journey, I think, and it makes you angry being sort of you know confronted with the sort of immovability of. I don't know how to describe it. I mean, the sort of endemic structural violence of the entire thing, you know. But um, but I think there's also a a kind of a courage that you can find, which we I was talking about this last night on a panel. But I think you know, dis the sense of despair. Who's that song by? Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. It's like you think, well. I can't bear to 
be uh, complicit in what's happening. So I have to try and do something. Mm. And although doing this work is quite personally um, challenging, I do think that it's also quite liberating. Mm. And 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 it's also quite um, liberating in that you find yourself surrounded by other people who also really care and also are really willing to to try to do what is needed and what's required of them at this time, you know, in in our world, in society at this moment. And that's also very, I've found, very beautiful kind of side effect of being part of this. You know, at the start of building the movement, people would come to a talk where we lay out some of the science and what's really happening and talk a little bit about scientific reticence and the conservatism, actually, of a lot of the projections. We do find time and time again that, you know, we're tracking every single worst case scenario that scientists have projected. We're not tracking like a decent middle ground or the, you know, or the more optimistic end. We're, we're doing really badly on, mm. on kind of almost every front. And so when you would sit and talk through this stuff with people and accept that there's a healthy dose of grief and emotion that comes along with it, we would find a lot of people at the beginning going, oh, thank God for this, because I can't have these conversations with my family. I can't talk to my friends about it. People tell me that I'm like making them miserable and all of that. And um, so, yeah, finding uh, if you if you want to square up to the reality of this and do, you know, do some of the sort of heavy lifting on the emotional labor. And if you also want to then move into into action and taking non-violent direct action yourself you will also find yourself surrounded by people who can offer you the real compassion and support that that you need because it's like a commitment to stare into the abyss and not look away and mm -hmm. most people just want to look away mm -hmm. i understand why but i do think that it's irresponsible but you know to do to do it all the time takes an enormous amount of um Emotional strength, I would say, spiritual strength mm. as well. Mm. So what's the mission in the next few years for Extinction Rebellion? Are you hoping to attract more people to the movement to help really build? You know, what, what's, what's the mission now? Well, you know, we've just been sort of doing all of our networking and bridge building and actions to try and build towards this uh, big coming together in April um so short term you know for me at least it, it feels that the mission is to help to join those dots between you know the people who are furious because our rivers are full of like raw sewage and shit and our MPs don't care um people who are uh, worried about like dead zones that are appearing in the ocean around free ports people who think that the government is at war with nature, which includes the whole conservation and NGO space, people who are worried about social justice issues, whether that's people who can't pay their bills, whether that's racial justice, whether that's gender-based justice, whether that's whatever, you know, there's there's just so many reasons for people around the UK to look to each other and be able to have a conversation that like you know politics isn't working for them at mm. all and this is the big one that's happening in april isn't it we're hundred thousand people is the aim isn't it 
bring them to London to protest? Yeah, and I think, you know, we've always had a solution that we've proposed, which is a political one. It's not people go, oh, well, what's your solution then? And it's like they want to talk about renewables or have some sort of crappy argument with you about gas boilers or like when we should get rid of them or whatever. (laughs) Um, But actually, you know, we've always had a proposed solution, which is for ordinary citizens to to write legislation and policy um, because they're capable of having a, a really mature conversation about stuff that like MPs are, you know, their interests, they've got vested interests, they're lobbied, things get distorted, uh, big dull dose of corruption in there in the mix. And suddenly you have a, you can look at a political system that is incapable of dealing with this. It can't, it can't do it. You know, and there's so many external forces on the system that coerce it that even if it tried to do the right thing, which it doesn't at the moment, but even if it tried to, it would it would really struggle to do that because, you know, Rupert Murdoch would tear you apart. The lobbyists would move in. The people in 55 Tufton Street would have their way with, you know, the stories in the telegraph and the mail you saw it with the gas boilers actually go back to gas boilers when you know boris was going to bring forward the date to get rid of them the the lobbyists in 55 tufton street which if your listeners don't know what that is go and look up tufton street it's it's a stain on britain um and uh they moved like lightning speed to fill the newspapers with all this crap about how if you get rid of gas boilers, then loads of grannies are going to die of the cold. And yeah, they're just spin uh, PR machines, basically, that, that lobby government inside and then manipulate the conversation outside through the media. Um, so even if you had a good person in charge... Are you saying Boris right is a good thing, person doing the right thing on this? Is, it, is he an ally, do you think? No, I don't. Well, no, I don't think so. <laughs> but I mean, he was good I'm on gas boilers. <laughs> what I'm saying is, even if you had a very worthy and good person sitting in that position, mm. which he isn't, <laughs> uh, but he was trying to do that mm. one thing, which would have been good. Even if you have someone who's trying to do the right thing, there's so much in place to stop them from being able to, if you see what I mean. Yeah. And yeah. and you can see the same thing in the finance um, space. You know, we've done a lot of campaigning on trying to force banks to stop putting their money into um, fossil fuels. And HSBC recently um, made us an announcement that they were going to stop investing in new fossil fuel projects. Firstly, they got exposed for funding a coal mine in Germany and asking people to keep it quiet. So trying to like hush up the £350 million that they put into that. So, you know, it it obviously wasn't um, their actual intention to do it anyway. However, they then were like threatened with being sued for making that policy, right? So you've got all of these mechanisms in place where even if, an actor like a bank like an mp like the government whatever tries to make this shift they just get someone chucks a ton of bricks on top of them mm-hmm. and it, and it happens again and again you go and look at the paris climate agreement it only got signed because it wasn't legally binding um so now you can't really enforce it you can't hold anyone to it then in the uk you have like the the higher courts decide that actually you shouldn't expand Heathrow Airport because it would 
definitely be a policy that would put you in breach of any chance of getting your Paris Agreement met. Then that gets overthrown by the Supreme Court. That gets all overturned. So you can just see this buck passing of like, you know, any concrete prevention of making things worse seems mm -hmm. to be extremely hard to achieve. Um, so for us, you know, we've always said if citizens were given all the information, you get a group of citizens together, they're sort of lottery selected, like randomly selected. So that's a bit like the jury system. It's like not corruptible. It's not lobbyable. And they get educated together on the issues at hand. Of course, they bring with them a lot of like life experience and all the things that they know themselves. So there's a richness and a diversity in the room and it represents the nation. And they sit down and go, what are we going to do about this? They actually come out with the most phenomenal things, you know. Mm. Uh, so, you know, you've made it really clear that this is an extremely urgent issue. We're a generation behind. What do you think needs to happen now? What are this group of people, all these experts, all the other people involved in society that you feel have got the expertise to make some change happen? What would they say needs to happen right now? We're saying, you know, we know that we need to stop oil and gas licenses. We know that we need no more fossil fuel funding. We know that we need to cut off the, <laughs> turn it off, turn mm -hmm. off the supply, turn off the tap that's like making it worse. It's literally the first thing you would do if you've got a crisis related to carbon emissions is try to stop producing them, right? Mm. Not fucking rocket science. <laughs> so what we're saying is everybody knows that we need to end the fossil fuel era. We suggest that the way that should be done is by citizens being able to write their own destiny and decide how that should happen. What mm. would be a just way for that to happen? Mm. And it's and it's complicated because, you know, the whole economy is made of carbon. Mm. Everything we mm. do has carbon emissions attached to it practically. Mm. There's not that many low carbon things that you that you do do regularly in society. I mean it's it's the enormity of it is yeah. uh, you know, quite quite challenging, I think, for people to get their heads around. But this is why we're saying like we would trust ordinary people who understand real life, mm. not completely like unhinged from reality, mm. like a lot of people who are sitting in the highest positions of power. Mm. Um to, to decide what to do and how to make it fair to mm. everybody or and, as fair as it can be. Yeah. And do, do you think the reason that governments aren't turning the tap off, as you describe, is because they know that the disruption that that would cause to, well, to everything, I guess, because as you said, we're very reliant on carbon. Do you think that's why they're in the background saying, well, we're going to move to net zero and we're investing in renewable economies and they want to do all of that in the background but keep the tap switched on for now. That that would be their argument, wouldn't it? They would say, we are doing something, we are looking at it, we're not quite switching the taps off yet but we are working in the background to you know, have some alternatives in place but we're not prepared basically to switch the tap off right now because it's going to be super disruptive, isn't it? Well... It was really disruptive being locked in your own home for like six months, wasn't it? Absolutely, it was. <laughs> I mean, they're not actually that afraid of doing things that are yeah. disruptive mm. when it's an existential threat. I think, Good point. you know, I think that there are really frightening connections between things, uh, people in the fossil fuel sector, people in the highest positions in finance, 
and people in Westminster and people in a lot of these institutions and mm. also people in the media. I mean, once you start to look at the connections between all of the people and the meetings that come out that go, oh, you know, uh, who was it? The minister, Kwasi Kwarteng, was it? that um, mm. One of the energy bosses went to see when the don't pay campaign was saying they were going to strike their payments on energy bills. And they basically went to see him to say, if this strike goes ahead, like the whole sector is uh, just fucked. We're, it will destroy us because we can't not have that much of our payment come in in, uh, in, a, in a month. So that got then leaked. And I think, you know, it shows really that like they go to the politicians when they're scared because the politicians are making sure that their lives are okay, that their businesses are fine. They are being scrutinised for not admitting that when they say that they're putting money into renewables, what they're really doing is putting the majority of their money into more fossil fuels, investing a tiny amount in development of and research, investing a tiny amount in developing and building actual infrastructure for renewable energy and 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 just consistently like backing oil and gas as much as possible um i think it's you know there's there's one of the reasons that i think that we're we're stuck with this is basically because of this sort of like tying up of things um at the sort of highest levels where where lots of people are connected up in a way where you know they protect one another's interests obviously a lot of that but I think there's also um, a, just a, a massive um, lack of vision. Mm. You know, I, I, things have to change. We've been. If you read the words that come out of the UN that say things like we need a transformative approach to 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 completely um, change everything about the way we live, everything about the way that we power our societies, everything about what we eat, everything about the way we travel, everything about how we heat our homes, how we live together listen to those words of what they're saying is necessary and then look at what people are actually doing. Mm, and they're mm. not doing anything. No. It's like they're just going, la, 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 like that. How do we convince people that this change needs to happen? It's, I mean, is it, is talking about what, what's happening in the world, but taking a very, what they would say is quite a pessimistic route to communicate this information. Is that helping people to, want to make that change for some it is because it's obviously getting action and people are joining and people are wanting to be a part of the movement but for a large number of people like you said earlier they just want to they've got you know blinkers on they don't want to look at it they don't want to think about it how do we convince those people that this change is needed and it's going to mean a lot of change on a personal level as well as on a societal and global level well i guess you know I've got a friend called Jamie who works in the sort of um, deliberative democracy kind of space. And he used to say this thing to us, like, you know, imagine in the future where you've like got a community that actually knows one another and loneliness is like one of the biggest killers in the UK. Mm. It's an epidemic uh, issue. And um, imagine that we like decide that you can't import bananas anymore. So you don't eat them but you do know your neighbours and you do have a say over like how your community gets run and you do have a little bit more free time to do stuff because you don't do a really big, disgusting commute that makes you miserable. Mm. 
mm. and you do <laughs> you know there's a lot of things that could like improve our experience of life and also you know feeling helplessness is extremely painful mm -hmm. and I think that is one of the reasons why people are turn away from the issue sometimes is because it feels vast they feel powerless they don't know what to do about it but actually you know the the idea of us taking back responsibility for our own democracy demanding to be participants in it, it you know that in and of itself is is a, a wholly better context I think that I can imagine living in compared to this where I feel like we're just being um it's like someone's got their hand over our mouth and the rope round our neck and they're dragging us into a future that we don't want to go into mm. that's what that's what I feel like under this government it's absolutely terrifying mm. uh and no wonder people are sort of frightened you know mm. but but if there's if there's enough of us demanding that we know that like there is much more goodness in ordinary British people mm. than mm. there is in the average sample that you would take out of the past of Westminster, then then we could all agree that like everybody should should be up for renewing the way that we do democracy together. Mm. And I and I do think that, you know, for that to be a shift, for us to say like one of the most major shifts is that we need to change the way that we govern ourselves, then you know, that's not scary. That's not like, oh, I won't be able to, I don't know, go on a really cheap holiday to Mallorca. It's like, no, but you also won't feel like you're being dragged into an, an uninhabitable future with no agency. Mm. Yeah. Mm. No. <laughs> you know. To join, do you have to be willing to put your liberty on the line? No. No. And loads of people work with us who don't and, you know, there are good reasons why some people actually just totally can't yeah mm -hmm. and um you know that has to do with all kinds of aspects of a person's identity ability visa status all sorts of things can can play into those things people's jobs um and careers family situations um so we i mean at the start we used to say you know would you be willing to do this or would you be willing to help with a movement that supports people that do? So, you know, it's, um, I think it's important to bear that part in mind because there's a diversity of campaigning that goes on through our movement. And it's really great that we've got lots of groups that sort of put pressure on their local council and show up at certain events and disrupt um AGMs and do all kinds of things like that, which which you ordinarily don't, you know, you don't find yourself in trouble with the police for doing quite a lot of those kinds of forms of activism. But I also know that particularly from this year onwards, there's lots of court cases now going through Crown Court where people are at risk of, of prison sentences. And so it's important that we stay connected to that and the support for people who've done the work with Insulate Britain and Just Stop Oil and other radical movements across Europe that are um and the world that are that are facing these kinds of um you know increased kind of personal impacts i guess mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. because we all need to we all need to like hold together if mm -hmm. that makes sense mm -hmm. I think. and i read that there last year there were over a hundred people imprisoned in britain for protesting and uh yeah. you know that's quite a large number of people just for 
doing what is our right and i wanted to talk yeah. to you about the the bill and the you know proposed changes to the law around protest and what you what you think and feel about that yeah i think very few people in britain probably realize the scale of politicized well political prisoners the number of people who've been imprisoned and uh, of course you know if people have broken the law in the name of doing a protest then they'll face some consequences in court but a lot of people were put on remand last year some of whom were not put through a proper jury system because they'd broken an injunction so the use of kind of private injunctions by companies in order to uh, put you in a civil case which means that you just go straight to court for a breach of an injunction you can go straight to prison all you have is a is a hearing with a with a judge who basically is there to sentence you because you've broken an injunction so it's a fast track way to get people to either lose their assets or go to prison or both so some people i know faced those kinds of cases which uh have had you know enormous personal impact and don't follow the kind of um the expected procedure if you like of of being seen by a, a jury of your peers and then having that looked at through the lens of non-violence and protest and in in this country in in this country we have a tradition of um you know saying that we should really seek to avoid imprisonment of all peaceful protesters mm. you know so even if you've been what the government would say very annoying <laughs> or even if you've been <laughs> very disruptive you know our tradition says we don't we don't imprison people for mm. that kind mm. of stuff and increasingly people are being imprisoned for it and increasingly people are being remanded so again held before trial mm. so there's quite a lot of people who are still in prison now mm. who um spent christmas in prison they haven't been prosecuted with mm. anything Mm. And we know that the remand figures in the UK are very high because people are being getting stuck in jail and they can't get out. This isn't just pro this isn't just protesters, but other people who end up on remand potentially for something that they didn't do or something that they're not going to be prosecuted for. So there's a very large number of people who are getting stuck in our prison system. Um, I spoke to somebody who's in prison the other day, and they said that there was somebody that they'd shared a cell with who was who had been given a very short sentence like a few weeks which was served but they'd lost their paperwork and they were basically stuck in prison and couldn't get out wow. and they served their time but they just couldn't get out and they've been there for weeks and weeks longer than they were supposed to be you know so this is shocking this is not just um to me at the moment this is not just highlighting you know the fact that the uk has a very large number of political prisoners which i think most people wouldn't realize no so that our prison systems are like not functional uh and not safe um you know and and also need a, a great dose of reform added force and <laughs> reform yeah. yeah yeah and and peaceful protests i mean lots of people can think of what they would def describe as a, as peaceful protests that might be based well i guess some people might think peaceful protest is when you're not doing any kind of disruption whatsoever would for example um i know insulate britain uh, uh, you know gluing themselves to the m25 or going up the dartford 
bridge or um, in many cases in you know all through the last decade very many different organizations chaining themselves to various uh, buildings and railings and things like that is, would you define that as peaceful protests or would others describe that as something else which is then leading to these arrests which then lead to them people being imprisoned I would describe it as working in the tradition of non-violence and what non-violence means to me is um, a form of um, conflict where nobody gets hurt. So, um, you know, it's not um, being non-violent isn't being a pacifist. It's not deciding that you're just going to sit somewhere out the way and not get in anyone's way. It usually means that you're proactively deciding to go and put yourself in a position where it will cause um, people to pay attention. Perhaps it will disrupt some people's experience of a space or of a time during the day. Um, that then creates a space which didn't exist before you went and did the thing. So, you know, if you go and chain yourself to something, um, the people who then engage with the fact that you're chained there have to come and engage with you. The people whose property it is has to engage with you. The people who on look have to engage with it. The press might also engage with it. You might have a movement that's engaging with it. And so this, the capacity for it to generate potential for dialogue is enormous. Mm. Um, and, you know, what somebody I work with often says is that nonviolence doesn't pr propose uh doesn't always propose like a concrete solution what it does is it creates the space for people to sort of realize things awaken to things pay attention to things have conversations about things and in that way it, it, it triggers things that can move make the wheels move for change if that makes sense yeah and yeah absolutely so it, it's important i think when people use the term peaceful protest um you know if you are calm and non-violent and you're not trying to you know cause any um harm to any being um you know then i would say that's that's peaceful but i think the 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 problem with that language is just that it people sort of hear peaceful and they think oh nothing happening mm, mm. <laughs> i think peaceful means a, a state of nothing happening yeah but actually non-violence is a much more useful term i think because because it helps us to understand uh, something a, a different energy. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so when I watch a lot of media interviews on telly, um, the the one thing they always come back at you on is when people are doing a non-violent protest on a London street or or something like that, and it obviously causes backlog of cars and disruption. And the first thing that always say to you is you know what if an ambulance doesn't get through doesn't get uh, you know someone that's sick to hospital and as a result that person you know dies in the ambulance and it's all because you know there was a protest and the street was backed up what would you say to people that use that as a as a as a way to say well you know we shouldn't be doing this we shouldn't be blocking the streets we shouldn't be chaining ourselves uh, to, to you know to get the attention and to gain the traction that's required in order to make the change happen what's your what's your policy on that um well the, most of the people who use 
that as a sort of weaponized point of debate, I would mm. the first thing I'd say to them is grow up because it's really childish. It's not rooted in any truth. There's no data that I've ever seen that shows that our protests have had uh, an adverse, a massively adverse effect on the emergency services in London. Like obviously disruptive things happen in London all the time. Um, whether that's the London Marathon, whether that's closing it down for a car-free afternoon for people to cycle around, whether that's, you know, for festivals, for all sorts of things. There's loads of reasons why, like, loads of parts of London are constantly being closed down and opened up and closed down and opened up. Um, there's also very little evidence I've ever seen on the public record to say that there's been any serious um obstruction there have been times when uh emergency vehicles um struggled to get past a protest because the police blocked the road and wouldn't let them through but our movement always lets them through so we have a blue lights policy blue lights come fire ambulance we find a way to move the crowd and let them through mm, it's mm. not a popular topic of conversation with the mainstream media because it's a very easy little thing to get in people's heads ambulances ambulances ambulance it's like a you know people have heard it so many times now it's become true because mm. it's been said so many times and mm. it's not true as far as i'm aware um I, you know mm. if it was i would completely you know hold my hands up and say oh there was this one time that i know of and it was our fault but i don't actually know of any time when it was our fault i know there's been a, a protest where somebody couldn't get somewhere for an appointment or a protest where somebody was late to get to things somebody missed a flight perhaps whatever i know that people have had those kinds of disruptions caused by the protests mm -hmm. um but the ambulance story is an interesting one because it's just that it's like a meme that mm -hmm. you know you repeat it again and again and again and it becomes like a thing that 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 comes up very quickly for people oh xr ambulances it's you know it, it, it to my knowledge it's just not true mm. so it's 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 deeply um saddening that people sort of believe basically what very rotten people in the media tell them because they also know that actually a lot of what these people say is is also a load of rubbish mm. so if you say to people well do you leave you believe everything you read in the daily mail loads of them will go no of course not it's like well why do you believe what they write about us then <laughs> mm. so you know. you know and that's you know those kinds of stories as you said you know feel they're being weaponized because those are the types of stories that stop people aligning themselves potentially mm. with extinction rebellion so you know it's really interesting to hear it from your perspective um yeah. you know quite quite interesting actually what you said there about of course there's events you know in that you know bring london to a standstill you know known events so would when you do protest do you give advance notice to the police to um you know public services to let them know that this is happening so that eventually you know basically people can plan and reroute if they need to yeah when we launched the movement i think that was one of the more controversial things that we did was go and like talk to the police and say hey we're going to be on these bridges at this time for at least the whole day we're just letting you know mm, yeah. <laughs> and you know if if there's if they're forewarned then you know they can work out what's the best advice to give to people to reroute things on the day depending mm. on what's happening in london that's that's kind of what they do so 
you know, giving them a couple of days notice was was always what we sort of started out doing. Mm. You obviously don't, you know, if you've got a group of people who are going to do something that needs to be kept quite quiet for for some reason in in order because you know that the police will completely stop you before you get there or you know say you're trying to park a um a vehicle somewhere and people are going to go and you know lock onto the bottom of it or something like that mm. you might not go and say oh by the way we're going to bring a van and we're going to drop it off here at nine in the morning and we're <laughs> going to do this you know yeah but um but uh depending on what's taking place i think there is still a line of communication going on with the police i mean i don't i don't hold that role but um you know trying to make sure that there's um everything minimizes the risk and again you know that's like something that you would do you know in part because it's the because of the tradition of non-violence you know you seek to not cause any harm it's like the whole point of this is to not cause harm but to mm. protect life and you know that's the joke isn't it where the media are going Oh, uh, eco like doom cult and all this you know it's like a death cult it's like it's actually more like a life cult <laughs> <laughs> like the death cult's actually everything else that I've been talking about in this interview you know yeah. that's like destroying life on earth well, what are some of the myths about extinction rebellion that you'd like to bust in this podcast today oh what are the things that anger you when you think that's not us that's not what we're doing that's not what we're trying to do it really you know infuriates you when you see these headlines um if it, it frustrates me a lot when when you see the ambulance story and um and it frustrates me a lot when you see the hypocrite story which is like you know i got interviewed once by um piers morgan and this has kind of gone down in history with some of the people that I know because he literally had a go at me for owning some shelves. <laughs> right. That was like the most hypocritical thing you could do is like own a piece of furniture that's made of wood. Right. Um, and by the way, they like that kind of Ikea shelving that costs 20 quid. It's like the cheapest thing in the shop and it's not mine. <laughs> I live in a house <laughs> with other people. I don't even know who owns it. <laughs> Oh, was so, this in the background when you were doing yeah. an interview on video and he was pointing yeah. out something in the background? Oh, yeah. right. Okay. And, you know, we see loads of people who go, well, who are you? You know, you're all just middle class, this, that, the other. You're not, nobody likes you. Rob Rinder once said to me on, on a radio interview that our movement was extremely unattractive. <laughs> and I just laughed in his face. It's just like, wow. Like what you know and then he went on like oh you're not representative and you don't you just all look like whatever it just i mean mm. yeah i think there's a there's an awful lot of like tropes that get thrown at us and it's mostly you know it's hard to it's hard to do this work mm. and most people are doing it for like no money or living off very little money and risking a lot and putting all their efforts into it i just think it's like what I'd like people to understand is that when when people who get paid a fucking fortune to sit in the media with a face full of makeup being told what to say for enormous pay and they have the audacity to say that we're not like normal people because we're too privileged and they probably have an income of like about 40 times what I earn in a year. 
because I live off fuck all. Like, I am not like the elite weirdo here. They are, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, you know, they don't live in reality. They have vile opinions for money, like Jeremy Clarkson, like Piers Morgan, you know, like a lot of them really just do what they do for pay and they live an extremely elitist lifestyle and there is no reason to listen to them when they say, oh, yeah, but they're a bit middle class, aren't they? It's like you are fucking minted and I feel sick. <laughs> That's what I'd like people to think about. <laughs> because that hypocrite argument should never work. You know, it should never go anywhere. Mm. It's like um, Stephen Fry did a gorgeous video for us a little while ago where he just basically said, you know, it's so difficult, isn't it? Because as soon as you say you care about the environment, somebody will say, well, look at you, you're wearing a pullover. I mean, you're such a hypocrite. You've got clothes on. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, you know, yeah. it's not, I would like people to see the, 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 the audacity in, in that, you know, commentary that mm. comes through the media because mm. it's just so, it's painfully immature you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and in addition to it as well, you know, I do think that a lot of this stuff is just about making sure that we get sort of put in a certain type of box because it helps to, you know, it helps to reduce the importance of the issue if you don't like the messenger. And that's obviously a really like old tried and tested technique. Like a lot of the climate deniers who did it professionally for a long time, are on the record as saying, you don't need to destroy the science. You need to destroy the person who's presenting it. You need to dismantle the person, their credibility, their personality, like whatever you can do to them. Just make them look like a pariah, a bastard. I don't know. Who cares? Like tell everyone they're a paedophile, whatever it takes. Just like, just destroy their reputation so they can't be credible. And then it won't matter whether they're right. That's, I mean, all of this is kind of quite well documented that people know how to do this. And I think, you know, it relates to this piece that I read yesterday in The in the Guardian about how there was a big mainstream media push back against the abolition of slavery movement. And that push was basically funded by, was, was, it was pushed by people who sought to continue to make profits out of the, mm. out of the slave trade. Mm. It didn't it didn't suit a lot of people to have mm. that shut down. And obviously it was a, a disgusting um, situation that the people who were campaigning to get it dismantled would, were morally totally unarguably on the right side of everything. Mm. And yet the British media had a good dose of like pushing back on it because it was against people's economic interests. And that's just the same as we've got now you know mm. that's a really strong message isn't it actually to send and uh yeah the rich and powerful again you know the rich and powerful are in charge of the slave trade and the rich and powerful are in charge of what happens here in a way unless as you say we can bring this movement forward so tell people that are listening that might want to take part in the big one in april is it a case of just signing up to your website? How do they take part? And is the key message that you don't, you don't have to potentially risk getting arrested? It literally is a, a march in London, isn't it? Is that the start of perhaps joining the movement if you're interested? Yeah, well, there's a thing on the internet, on the website where you can sign up. And um, 
if you haven't, then um, please do that. Um, the the sign up should give you like then it updates and and information will be emailed to you about about what's going to happen. The plan is to go and be outside Westminster in very large numbers. And the message that we're saying to people is: imagine if on the Iraq War march, rather than everyone just do that for one Saturday and then go home, um, even just a small number of those people had you know a hundred thousand people, let's say, had sat down and said, "We're not going anywhere until we get a better answer." because we all know that this is totally unjust and totally unnecessary and you are not doing it in our name. You're just not. So if, if we can sort of get people to understand the efficacy of persistence, mm. you know, this is the sort of um, the gambit, if you like, is that with larger numbers and some persistence, we don't need to do the things that we've done in the past where people are chained to things and glued to things and people are trying to use certain techniques to be able to stay there for a long time. You just have enough people that you, you know, you can't arrest 50,000 people mm. at once. You know, mm. you just, mm. you just have enough people to present that situation and it mm. builds popular support through that. So mm. I don't know if it's definitely going to work, but I do think it's worth trying, trying at this moment. It's kind of context specific, uh, I guess because of the um, because of we've got so many energized trade unions because we've got people striking bills because people can't afford to pay for their bills. We've got the cost of living crisis. We've got the nature crisis. We've got the raw shit and sewage crisis. We've got the, the everything crisis. It's, yeah. it's an attempt to to say, well, look, you know, we've got enough common we've got enough common interest to like come together here, folks. And there's also a better way that we could be doing politics which is more representative and more fair and it already works. Yeah. We already know how to do it. You know, we, we could all be invested in, 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 in something that's a common solution. Mm. This so, really is the age of protest as well, isn't it really? I mean, look at the strike action that's happening now and it's just yeah. getting bigger and bigger and the protest, it is just incredible what's happening right now isn't it and actually I can imagine that you are going to get a, you know an even bigger movement in April yeah. and beyond because people are starting to see that this is the only way really to try to make change happen because we've we've tried everything else yeah and I think you know one of the things that my friend's been saying is like we want people to hear come as you are not as XR like it's okay to come and be I'm from this association or I'm from this trade union or I'm from this other group. It's not about everyone becoming Extinction Rebellion by being outside at that time. We're just trying to help to convene a, a, a broad gathering of, of lots of people, which has the ambition to sustain itself over multiple days mm. uh, in, in order to make it m more difficult to, to ignore by the mm. people in, in, in power. So if people want to get involved with XR, then, um, you know, they can sign up to the website. Even if people don't want to get like totally embedded in the movement, I still think you should sign up to the website so that you know what's going on. And then also, if you do want to join the movement, then you can find your local groups and there's local groups all over the UK. So you can go and find a group and go and say hello to them and mm. uh, they should make you make you very welcome and help you find a, a job to do <laughs> yeah i'm sure there's plenty of jobs to do isn't there <laughs> yeah 
thank you Claire for joining us on Tea with the Changemakers this week I really enjoyed our chat it was a fascinating insight into Extinction Rebellion thank you very much